conversation about all things black, black people, black news, quality. Uh, sometimes we get into the celeb side, but we like to really focus on the education and the learning side. So I want to welcome you all to this space. If you would, do me a favor and share this broadcast out. We do know that uh, Facebook tends to suppress anything concerning us or about us. So the way that you help this broadcast move to a wider range and a wider group of people is by liking the video and sharing it onto your respective pages and your spheres of influence. So we know that there is some good news today. We know that uh, Kristen Clark got formally uh, confirmed in the Department of Justice under their Civil Rights Division. So we say salute to that. Um, Also in the news, filmmaker Ava DuVernay uh, received a honorary doctorate from Yale. We already know about her skills um, and her love for our community, right? So we know that this is them just basically saying what we already know about her, that she is skilled and she's excellent in her own right. Um, So kudos to Ava DuVernay. And now we also know that today is the anniversary of the uh, cruel and unusual punishing act of George Floyd. We know that since that act has occurred, we've now come to find out, right, that there were even more egregious things that happened to other black men and women before his passing. And we've seen after his passing that more egregious things continue to happen within our community um, to our black brothers, sisters, and children. Um, So we know that what happened to him was not a one-off situation. Um, But what we we do know is that that particular film sparked a worldwide sort of cracking open of of the consciousness of people who are, would I say, less melanated. Um, It got some of our recessive brothers and sisters thinking about um, what it is that black people have been saying. And so that's what I want to kind of talk about tonight. And I want to go into um, the life of Ida B. Wells. Um, I've been reading about her for a couple of days now, and I've been really um, impacted by some of the things that I'm reading about her. So I wanted to take some time tonight to share a little bit of what I've been reading. I am reading the account from her great granddaughter. Her name is Michelle Duster. And the book is entitled, Ida B. the Queen. I highly recommend it. It's very uh, thorough. I like the way, I like the layout of it. It's very easy to read. Um, It's very easy for people to engage the material. It's not a whole lot of um, words, but it's, it's nicely put together. It's nicely produced. And they give you some specific context about Ida B. Wells that coming from her family, I don't think a lot of people really know, right? A lot of people just know her as 
the investigative journalist piece, um, you know, and her going about and really becoming actually the pioneer of what we now call investigative journalism, which is actually a person who's on the scene, who's doing the reporting, who's, um, you know, getting interviews of people who are right there when it's happening. All of that is based out of what Ida B. Wells was doing. Um, so she is actually really the pioneer of that field that that everybody kind of celebrates today. So I want to talk about Ida because I want to connect it to the larger issue of what's still happening and what's still going on today in our society and the need for people who investigate, the need for um, people who will do like the brave sister did who actually stood there, the teenager that stood there and filmed what was happening to George Floyd. Um, No teenager should have ever had to do that, but she literally became the Ida B of our time because that's what Ida B. Wells was doing in her time. She was going to um, the, the actual lynchings that were taking place and she was reporting on the ground what was occurring. Um, to the point where they started threatening her life um, and basically warning her that, you know, after a certain time, she could no longer go back down to the South to actually do the recordings because they basically said, if you come back down here, you're going to be next. You're going to be on the tree next, Ida. If you keep telling the world what it is that we're doing down here in the South. So the first thing I want to read to you is the fact that In the 1910s, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, began to put up a file. They began to open a file on Ida B. Wells. Now, this was something that I didn't know. I knew about some files on some other people. Um, But this is the file that they first created, and this is the very first declaration that they made about Ida B. Wells. They said... We have on file quite a few reports from different cities where she has addressed meetings of colored people and endeavored to impress upon them that they are a downtrodden race and that now is the time for them to demand and secure their proper position in the world. Hmm, very interesting words. Secure their proper position in the world. They went on to write, she is a very effective speaker and her influence among the colored race is well recognized. I believe she is considered by all of the intelligence officers as one of the most dangerous Negro agitators and it would seem that her case should be considered very carefully before she's given a passport to the peace conference. Now, Ida B. Wells was supposed to go to this Um, conference that was being held in Paris at the time um, on human relations and human rights and she wanted to get to this conference because she wanted to bring up the fact that people in America, black people in America were being mistreated. So how is it that you can be holding a conference on peace but nobody is really talking about the hypocrisy of American life for black people living in America. 
So the FBI intervened and sent a letter to this these uh, officials and caused her to not get approved for a passport in order for her to go and participate in this conference. So I, I bring this up because on the back end of some of these things, when we look at the people who are out here now, when we look at our um, those who are speaking on black rights, those who are um, doing the journalistic work, those who are on the ground, those who are filming protests, those who are speaking on behalf of black people to elevate us, okay? Those who are speaking on behalf of black people to elevate us, they're also targets as well. So don't ever think if you are a person who are in who is in this space, if you're a person who's in the social media space, don't ever think that the work that you're doing, that the sharing of knowledge that you're doing, um, that the calling out the, of the hypocrisy of our country that you're doing, don't ever think that that is being overlooked. Some people may say, well, you're just a, um, you know, a talking head. But the FBI had enough sense to understand that Ida B. Wells had influence with the black community. Well, let's go a little bit further. Let's talk a little bit more about the kind of influence that Ida B. Wells had. In 1892, Frederick Douglass wrote her a letter expressing his appreciation for her writings. It is said that Frederick Douglass was one of the most well-known faces internationally in his time um, due to the use of photography. He was one of the most um, often photographed black men of his time, okay? So here's what Frederick Douglass writes about her work. He says to her, Dear Miss Wells, let me give you thanks for your faithful paper on the lynch abomination now generally practiced against colored people in the South. There's been no word equal to it in convincing power. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. Now you're talking about expositor Frederick Douglass saying to Ida, I have spoken on this but my words are feeble in comparison to what you're putting out. He wasn't intimidated by Ida. He wasn't trying to suppress Ida's voice and say, oh, Ida, because you're a woman, I don't think you should be speaking on this. I don't think you should be talking about this. I don't think you should be putting out papers about the killings and the lynchings of black men. Ida, go sit down. (laughs) A couple of our brothers can take some notes from Frederick Douglass. He says to her, you give us what you know and testify from actual knowledge. You have dealt with the facts with painstaking fidelity and left those naked and uncontradicted facts to speak for themselves. Brave woman, you have done your people in mine a service which can neither be weighed nor measured. If American conscience were only half alive, if the American church and clergy were only half Christianized, which means Frederick Douglass knew that a lot of these those people that called themselves Christians were not. 
If American moral sensibility were not hardened by persistent infliction of outrage and crime against colored people, a scream of horror, shame, and indignation would rise to heaven wherever your pamphlet shall be read. In other words, if these people had any conscience at all, they should have been horrified. They should have been ashamed. They should have been crying out to God for the atrocities that their own kin were committing at the time. But none of that fazed them. So here we are today. We're in 2021 and we're still seeing the lynching because that's what an extrajudicial killing is. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're being hung from a tree. It can be any kind of way that you're killed. It's an extrajudicial killing. You're being murdered without due process. When someone comes along and decides that they're going to be judge, jury, and executioner, that's a lynching. When someone doesn't arrest you for committing a crime and take you in through the process, through the legal process of representation, and to be your um, your case to be decided upon by a jury of your peers, you actually get a chance to say, is this going to be decided by a jury of my peers or do I want to plead before a judge? When you don't get that process, it's a lynching, all right? But not only was Ida B. Wells doing this investigative reporting, I want to talk tonight real quickly about another area of her life that, again, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's very, very powerful. Ida opened what was called the Negro Fellowship League. This was an organization that she started in 1908 with a group of her study students, people who were studying the Bible with her. And she had been getting financial support from the black community to open up this league. It was called the Negro Fellowship League Reading Room and Social Center. Because she said at the time, as she was living in Chicago, that the only other place that black people could come from the South to the North, because they were escaping the lynching horrors of the South, mainly, to come to the North to try to find new homes, to try to find jobs, mainly men. A lot of them were leaving their families behind to go to the North until they could find something, and then they would send for their wives and their children. But she said, there's only one social center open right now, and that is the saloon. In other words, that's the bar. So we've got to do something more for black people in our community because they're coming up here and they're being distracted by the vice that was going to intoxicate them, not necessarily help them to progress and find the job and the place to stay and things that they needed. So that's why she opened this center. Now, this center became more than just a gathering space. She and her husband, Ferdinand Barnett, who was a lawyer, get this, helped many young black men who were falsely accused of crimes. Many of these men were released 
An average of 45 people per day were enjoying this meeting space that she had created. Some of the men that came from the South were staying upstairs in the dormitory style space for less than 50 cents per night, giving them a place to rest. The reading room portion was open from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Ida and her students kept it stocked with things like the Chicago newspaper so men could look through to find job ads. Southern papers such as the New Orleans Tribune and the Oklahoma Eagle were also available so that they could read about events back home. Those who regularly spent time there hosted also weekly lectures and a variety of speakers that would come in like black intellectuals William Monroe Trotter, Irvin Garland Penn, and the historian Carter G. Woodson. So when their supporters' funds dried up three years into this project, Ida and Ferdinand kept the league open. First, they had to move to smaller quarters to be able to afford to keep it open. And then she found herself getting a paying job to earn the money to support the center. This is how she became Chicago's first female probation officer. So the job paid enough, about four times what the rent would cost on the new building. And despite her demanding schedule, she was able to juggle being a female probation officer. She was also a wife. At the time, she was a mother of four children. And when she left working a full day at court, she would go to the center until at least eight in the evening to either set up the lectures or care for the men who were staying in the dormitory, trying to get a safe space, a place to stay and look for a job while taking care of her own household. Yeah. But we don't hear about that part. Yeah. She was willing to sacrifice her own time in order to help these young men get on their feet and successfully transition to life in the city. And her husband, who was an attorney, would go in and represent men, black men, who came to the area who were being falsely accused of crimes to get them out of jail. They were a team. So Ida had her advocacy side, her social service side to help black men get on their feet. And her husband worked on the legal side to keep black men from being falsely accused of crimes and locked up while they were trying to get on their feet, moving from the South to the North. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out. According to the data that they collected during that time, Ida and Ferdinand managed to keep the Negro Fellowship League open for a total of 10 years until 1920. During that time, Ida had helped find jobs for approximately a thousand men and had provided a place to stay for many others who might have otherwise been left to roam the streets. As one writer said today, they said, the one true advocate 
that black men have always had in this country has been the black woman. I'm so glad that Ida's husband recognized the power and the importance of her work and her call and didn't try to stop her from doing it. I'm so glad that he recognized the power and the importance of his call and realized how their calls worked together and not against each other. Now, did the FBI leave Ida B. Wells alone? They didn't. Apparently, she got a visit from some Secret Service agents while the Negro Fellowship Office was open. At first, a reporter came by, asked her about the button that she had on. She started explaining to the reporter about the purpose of the button. The button was given to the reporter, and she thought that was the end of it. Well, the next day, gets another visit. This time, it's not the reporter. It's two white males. They say they're the Secret Service, and they've been told about these buttons that Ida B. Wells has been making. What are the buttons about? Well, the buttons are about a little-known incident in history that happened during her time called the Camp Logan Incident. Some of you may have heard of it. But in the Camp Logan Incident, these were black soldiers who were sent to um, Houston, Texas. And while they were in Houston, Texas at the base there, because of some of the Jim Crow laws, they were being treat, mistreated, they were being disrespected, they were being threatened, um, and they were dealing with hostility from not just the white citizenry, but also from the, the white police officers in Houston, Texas. So there came a point on August 23rd, 1917, that a black soldier there witnessed a white police officer by the name of Lee Sparks attempting to arrest a black woman. When the soldier defended the black woman, he was clubbed and then arrested. Then his corporal heard what happened. Charles Baltimore, a black military MP, he went to find out what happened with the soldier. And then an argument broke out and he too was beaten by the police. Though he fled, Baltimore was later detained. Things began to escalate quickly. The town erupted into a frenzy. And then the black soldiers stationed at Camp Logan heard that a white mob was coming to attack them at the camp. So rather than wait like sitting ducks for the vigilantes to come, dozens of black soldiers grabbed rifles and headed into downtown Houston against the orders of their superior officers. Over the course of two hours, fighting ensued between the soldiers, the police, and the local white residents. It was a dark and rainy night as they were fighting, and so it was difficult to see what was happening in the mayhem. As a result, no one could identify the specific soldier who fired shots that killed the police captain. So in order to save themselves from persecution, 
Seven of the soldiers later agreed to testify against the others in exchange for clemency. Ultimately, a total of 118 enlisted soldiers were arrested. 63 of the soldiers were charged with mutiny. In a mockery of a trial, they were represented by a single lawyer. The accused were not granted a chance to appeal and the soldiers were denied their constitutional rights to due process. On November 28, 1917, 13 black soldiers were found guilty and sentenced to death, including their corporal. And two weeks later on December 11th, they were hanged. Then they went and got an additional seven and hanged them weeks after that. And seven others were acquitted while the rest were sentenced to various prison terms. The bodies of these soldiers who had been trained to fight for democracy abroad were unceremoniously thrown into mass graves with each individual identified only by a number from 1 to 13. Afterward, the scaffolding from which they had done the hanging was also burned. Not one white person was punished for this travesty. No civilians were ever brought to trial and the two officers who faced court-martial were released. Ida could not help but think about the injustice of it all. Her stepson at the time was in the army and she thought to herself, how were he and other black soldiers supposed to defend a country where they had no rights themselves? How could the United States government execute its own soldiers? So as she began to explain why she had this button on that she had created, that she was distributing to the black citizens to protest what had happened to all of those black soldiers at Camp Logan, the government sent the Secret Service to tell her to stop, to shut it down. Yeah. They told her that she could be charged with treason. When they found out what she was doing, when they found out she had created these buttons as a marketing campaign to educate black people in the community about what had happened in Texas, they created a act called the Espionage Act of, ni- of, of June 1917. You can go look it up. The act essentially said that anybody who could be seen to be as interfering in the conduct of war could be fined for thousands of dollars or endure a lengthy prison sentence. And when they talked to her, they told her, if you don't stop, you can be brought up on charges of treason just for educating black people about the lynching and the tyranny that was occurring, that the government had murdered its own soldiers on American soil. Where's that in your history books? You know what her response was? She said, I understand treason to mean giving aid and comfort to the enemy in time of war. How can the distribution of this little button do that? Because the only reason you can charge her with treason, you would actually have to admit that you have always had 
a war going on against black people, including the ones who are in uniform serving this country. So, they came back and they said, you can still be prosecuted. They went back and forth with her. Here's what Ida concluded. This is what she said to them. She said, if it is treason for me to think and say that this government deserves to be criticized, then you will have to make the most of of it. If that's what you're going to charge me with, so be it. I'd rather go down in history as one lone Negro who dared to tell the government that it had done a dastardly thing than to save my skin by taking back what I have said. In other words, I said what I said. I would consider it an honor to spend whatever years are necessary in prison as the one member of the race who protested rather than be with all the 11,999,999 Negroes who didn't have to go to prison because they kept their mouths shut. End quote. When the agents told her she ought to consult a lawyer, she was amused because her husband was a lawyer after all. The two of them had discussed this possibility as they had planned together to distribute these buttons to educate. She knew her rights. The secret servant agents stared at her in amazement. They left without the buttons and she was never bothered about them again. The next day, the story got out that the secret service agents had come and that began to actually increase people's knowledge of what she was doing, the story that she was trying to tell, and people began to buy the buttons. Now the FBI did come back and hinder her campaign by getting to her printer to tell her printer not to make another batch of those buttons or that that printer would be fined and imprisoned. So here is the closing FBI file on Ida B. Wells for this incident. This is how it reads. It's FBI file 123754, dated January 2nd, 1918, Frank G. Clark. Agent called on subject together with Detective Bush and told her that Department of Justice wanted her to discontinue sale of buttons. She went into a great deal of detail concerning her right to protest against the recent hanging of the Negro soldiers, saying it was the first time this had ever been done without an appeal to the president. She would not give me a definite answer whether she would stop the sale of these buttons or not. And she also said she wanted to be brought into court so that she could die for this cause if need be. She added she would see her lawyer and obtain his advice before she would say yes and not to our order to stop this sale. Called on Secretary Lauderer Company and they say they had made 500 buttons and delivered them December 15th. I warned them not to make any further deliveries of the same and they promised not to take any more orders. 
I could not locate Miss Barnett today, her maid saying she went to the office and the office knew nothing of her whereabouts. Reported above facts to Mr. Olaba. What is my point tonight? My point tonight is as long as we are in this country and as long as they have decided that black people are a problem and we have been labeled a problem ever since, four million of our ancestors were set free from enslavement. We have been a problem ever since. Property is on the loose, multiplying and growing. And so ever since then, there has been an undeclared or rather unadmitted war against black people in this country. And I'm not just talking about all black people. I'm talking specifically about the descendants of the enslaved. We are the property that got away. We are the cash capital and credit that is still growing and somebody is mad about the income they can no longer make off of the cash capital and credit. And so as long as that is true, as long as that mindset is still in this country, you're going to continue to have to advocate for your freedom, for your life, for your safety, for your economic empowerment, for your political enfranchisement. All of those things are going to have to continue because we still have a group of people in this country that have not yet decided that we are free. We still have a group of people in this country that are upset that the property got away. We still have a group of people in this country that do not see us as five-fifths. They see us as three-fifths. So every generation is going to continue to birth out people who will continue to stand, who will continue to push back against dehumanization, who are going to continue to push back against attempts at re-enslavement, <laughs> who are going to continue to push back against police brutality, who are going to continue to push back against extrajudicial killings, also known as lynchings. I just want you to know that we have a rich history of fighting back. I want you to know that this didn't just start at May 25th, 2020. This has been going on for a very long time and it will continue and we will not stop because you didn't put us here. <laughs> I know some of y'all think y'all did, but you didn't put us here. You didn't create us. So you can't destroy us. In the words of uh, one writer, you can't kill us all. We're just going to keep on reproducing. And we're going to keep on birthing out revolutionaries, leaders, activists, investigative journalists, uh, freedom fighters, people who are going to remind you 
that our lives matter and that we are human and we're not going anywhere. So that's all I wanted to share tonight. If you want to uh, chime in, you can hit the uh, invite yourself in if you have a camera. And uh, we'll take about 10 minutes to do some response time. And we'll start with Ben. If you'd like to join our community, you can reach us through anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues, patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues. If you would like to support the broadcast and what we do here, the cash app is dollar sign life nation. All right, let's see who we can bring in on tonight. Um, ben, it said no camera from you. Not sure why. I did see you pop up in the bottom, but then when I tried to add you, there was no camera. So if you're listening by if you're listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for your time and attention. We are now signing out. Catch us tomorrow for Relationship Wednesday on the Daring Dialogues page. Until then, peace out.